Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan. I'm joined on my left by Tess Thackera, senior editor. Hey, Tess. Hey, Isaac. And our new editorial associate, Abigail Kane. Hey, Abby. Hey, Isaac. What's it like to, you know, move up from intern to the to the big leagues? How are you feeling? Pretty good. I got a seat at the table now. It's more yeah, comfortable. It's nice. I see you're, you're wearing some like very nice toucan earrings as a celebration of being on the podcast for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so this week we're going to be talking about museums versus the economy. Major museums around New York have announced recently buyouts, deficits. We'll take a look at what we know, what we don't know, and what we think about that. Then we'll actually take a look at what happens when a museum closes, going off an article written by you, Abby, Mm -hmm. um, coming out a few weeks ago, and we'll sort of explore what it means and the sort of uncharted territory of museum closure. We'll talk a little bit about the weirdest museums we've ever had the fortune of visiting, and finally, of course, where we'll be drinking white wine in the art world this week. So first up, Starting with the Mets announcement on April 21st, there's been a spate of financial news coming out of New York City museums, some good, some bad. Let's start with the big one. Tess, what's going on at the Met? So the Met has announced a budget deficit of about $10 million, which to put that in context, the Met's overall budget, annual budget is $370 million. So that might not seem huge, but the Met is concerned that this will snowball into, you know, a $40 million dollar debt. So they're doing the responsible thing and they're trying to trim down and that has included introducing voluntary staff buyouts. They are stalling the renovation plans for their David Chipperfield designed modern and contemporary wing. So they basically said we're going to take some time out to raise money. So I think there's going to be sort of an impulse by observers to ascribe at least some of this to the Met Breuer. Um, which was the Met's kind of recent expansion into the old Whitney building. Is there any truth to that? What's the museum saying? Well, they're saying no, that it has nothing to do with that, although there's this slightly nebulous idea in there because they're saying that there have been indirect costs incurred from the Met Breuer. Like? Like staff, um, you know, which, I mean, the staff at the Met accounts for 70% of their overall budget. And I think the curatorial staff accounts for about 30%. And I know that they've created about three new curator positions for the expanded modern and contemporary program. And they've also spent something like three billion, sorry, $3 million on the rebranding of the museum, mm. which has accompanied the launch. Controversial rebranding, we should say. Yes. But I like it. Very I'm, a, I like, I'm a fan of the new. You are. You're yeah. not a fan of anything, Isaac. I'm surprised you like this. What can I? Well, I like I like being a crunch, contrarian. So uh, I uh. sort of, you know. I think it's really harmless. We probably don't want to get into a discussion about the Met logo, the but I kind fan. of, I actually like it. I don't mind it. But I'm not American, so maybe that's why I don't feel so closely entwined um, with it. Entwined yeah. with the Met. So, Tess, that's one of the costs that they've kind of pointed to, but they've also pointed so to like Yeah, I mean, they're saying that this, in fact, paying. yeah, they're saying that actually this has to do with a drop in retail revenue, um, something like 40 cents less paid per visitor. Um, they're pointing to all these different things, but it seems like it's very hard to believe that there hasn't been some relationship to the Met Breuer. So moving from the Met, there's also some news coming out of uh, MoMA and the Brooklyn Museum. So yeah, the news coming out of the MoMA at first looked pretty bright, actually. It was announced that they'd just gotten a $100 million gift from David Geffen to help in their renovation of, or actually expansion, into the next door building. So the Times ran a big piece, the flush MoMA, the struggling Met, and then the next week, 
Wilma announced that they too were going to do voluntary buyouts. Someone someone mailed some crow to the to New York Times for that one. Right, but actually, unlike the Met, they've never they've made no link between these voluntary buyouts and their finances. They've just been saying that because of the construction with the renovation, they need fewer um, employees or curators because um, they've closed a couple of the galleries. But I think obviously the question that concerns our listeners the most is, are they going to be impacted? I don't think anyone's going to be aware of it at all, yeah. quite honestly. And when I went to, to this press breakfast a, few, a week ago, um, the director of the Met, Thomas Campbell, said that it's not going to be impacting visitors at all, and, and they really don't have any plans. No, I think they're going to be making internal changes. I don't think visitors will be remotely aware of it. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that, I mean, we're talking about some of the biggest museums in the world. These guys have, you know, billion billions of dollars. Met has a $2.8 billion endowment. Right. So a deficit of $10 million, while, you know, something to keep keep in mind, seems like small, small fry, kind of. Yeah, and they're taking the necessary measures. So it doesn't seem like this is anything anyone has to worry about. Although... This is a nice segue into Abby's piece. Um, as you wrote about Abby, museums can, in fact, fall victim to these kinds of very ambitious expansion projects. Mm-hmm. For those listeners who don't know, last week... Two weeks ago. Two, two weeks ago. ago, Abby came out with a piece about what happens when a museum actually closes, which I think is one of those questions that we never ask ourselves. We just sort of think, like, yeah, it closes. But obviously it's like so much more complicated than that. And you looked at four different museums, four mm-hmm. different case studies, each one kind of offering a different set of rules and different set of challenges. Right. And there's still controversy over a lot of these mm-hmm. these sort of closures because they're, they really inflame people's passions and people care a lot about the institutions nearby. So maybe if you could just sort of very quickly summarize why a museum would close. Why a museum might close? Well, I mean, so when we're talking about these museums, I talked to four different museums. They all closed about in the last like five to 10 years. And a lot of it had to do with the recession, the 2008 recession. But there are two sort of big factors that led to to the closures. It was not having an endowment or having a very small endowment and not having a permanent home or having a home that cost a lot to maintain. Mm-hmm. And those two factors in combination with, you know, tightened finances after 2008 just really kind of spelled the end for several museums. And I would think that, you know, that there must surely be a rule book on what to do, you know, sort of a play-by-play wiki how <laughs> on how to close a museum, but but maybe not. No, Isaac, you would be very wrong to assume no. that there was a wiki how. Um, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that came out of these interviews that I did. There is really no guidebook for museum closure. One of the the first people that I talked to um, while reporting this story was Richard Townsend, who is the director of the Museum of Biblical Art in New York, which closed in 2015. And he actually called the AMA and asked, you know, do you guys have some materials to help me kind of figure out this process? And they're like, no, sorry, not enough museums closed for us to really have that information. So he sort of weathered it alone. It just depends a lot on the institution and the collection and how much money they have when when they're closing down. So you mentioned how there's no guidebook because not a ton of museums close mm-hmm. down each year. But is there anything that the museums that do kind of close down or are being threatened with closure, and specifically the ones that you talk about in your piece? I know you talk about Museum of Biblical Art, which we already touched on, but what about the other ones? Is there any sort of like thread running beneath them? Well, I mean, they're all smaller regional museums. Those are really the museums that are going to struggle with closure. So the other three museums that I talked to were the Fresno Met, 
in Fresno, California, the Higgins Armory, which is in Worcester, Massachusetts, and the Corcoran Gallery, which was in Washington, D.C., which was by and far the largest museum that I talked to that closed. Mm -hmm. What's an example of how, like, one of these museums sort of grappled with closure in a way that people found kind of maybe the best case, making the best of the worst? Right. Okay. So, well, so going back to your question about whether there's a guide, there is no guidebook, really no blueprint, because honestly, every museum closes in a slightly different way. Um, And it's going to depend on a lot of of different factors. But the museum that I talked to that was, quote unquote, the best case scenario, as several lawyers told me, was the Higgins Armory in Worcester, because they realized long before they went bankrupt that they were in a bad situation. They had this beautiful Art Deco building from the 1920s that was terrible as a museum. It had no like modern features. Um, it cost them tons of money to run. And they figured that out. They decided they were gonna close. And so they found a partner that was willing to take in their collection in the same city. So the Worcester Art Museum took in not all of their collection, actually about half of it. That's one of the other things that's really the, the kind of contentious point in all of these things. Because a museum closes in the same way as really any other nonprofit. So like a hospital shutting down, a church shutting down, they would shut down in the same like basic way as a museum. It's just that the museum has the collection to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And people get really worked up about art because a lot of times people in the community have donated some of those works to the museum and they don't want to see them sold off to private collections or another city because they thought they were going to be in the public view forever. But this institution actually worked with the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Right. So they brought in, well, they actually, so the Higgins Armory has the second largest collection of armor in the world, second only to the Met. That's such a cool claim to fame. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was just one guy, one industrialist who's like, I love armor. I'm going to collect it in Mr. Massachusetts. (laughs) It's the American Um, dream. Yeah. Yeah. Is it armor from a particular period or is it? No, No, I think it ranges. Okay. Um, but yeah, they brought in Met, they brought in curators from the Met and went through 4,000 objects. They ended up with about 2,500 um, because some of the things, while cool, I guess, as to collect as a collector, they weren't museum worthy. Some of mm-hmm. them were replicas of other pieces. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up giving that entire collection to the Worcester Art Museum. And the Worcester Art Museum has actually put those works, not works, their objects, I guess, on display in really fascinating ways. So the first show they had was Knights exclamation point (laughs) (laughs) i Um, love that name i love that name (laughs) in case you weren't excited enough about armor but they put like 14th and 15th century suits of armor on display next to courtly portraits from the same time period to kind of draw connections between the two yeah um which is something that the higgins armory couldn't have done by itself so that's like that's like the perfect example of a museum closing down but its collection existing in the same community and then being able to do more things in the collection you might have been able to do in the original institution I really love that detail, just an aside here, because I went to the Detroit Institute of Art recently and saw some gothic armor, which is remarkably like ladies' fashion. It's like (laughs) cinched at the waist. Wow. And I love just imagining that. So not every um, museum closure results in knights, exclamation point. Um, Sadly, no. Sadly, no. There's obviously some more contentious examples in the past. The Corcoran, I think, is the one that most people have associated with this, with museums closing, at least recently. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me what happened there? Sure. So the Corcoran was, it's in, or it was in Washington, D.C., and it was both an art school and a museum, which ended up being sort of a difficult combination. 
because they they had a series of directors who sort of committed this series of financial blunders. They tried to design a Frank Gehry expansion in 2005, and it failed miserably. And so all of these things eventually led to them being very, very much in debt. And so they tried to find partners that they could work with to take both the school and the collection, and that just didn't end up working out. So they ended up deciding that they needed to split the institution in two, find a partner for the school and a partner for the collection. So the collection went mostly to the National Gallery of Art in D.C., and then the school was absorbed by George Washington University. There's been some feedback on your article, some comments on how the director of the Corcoran, former director, sort of characterizes it as not actually having closed. So that's a distinction that was made several times in the interviews that I that I did for this story. Um, the executive director of the New England Museum Association, Dan Yeager, he also made this distinction between museums full on closing, so their collections being dispersed between a lot of different institutions and something more like a merger, where most of their collection, like in the Higgins Armory, gets moved to a different institution. And while the museum, yes, it does close, the building is not that museum anymore, there's some sort of piece of it that remains. So Peggy Lore, who is the director of the Corcoran when it closed, also sort of made that distinction, saying that, you know, there are these important parts of the Corcoran that did pass on sort of in their entirety to other institutions. So in a way, the spirit of the place lives on. And the collection staying together is... More or less. I mean, some again, some of the works are were sold just because I think this happens in every, that's the most contentious part of a museum closure. Not all of the works are gonna, gonna remain in the collection because someone's gonna go through and cull some of the pieces. So why are people upset with the characterization that it hasn't closed? I mean, because there's something idealistic in saying a museum still exists when it, when it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it's true that I think it's very different. So there's another case that I talked, the the another case that I looked at, the, that of the Fresno Met, and that museum really did, it's full on closed. They, they, they went bankrupt, basically. They sold their collection, they parceled it out to different groups. They sold, you know, Native American baskets to a tribe in the San Joaquin Valley. They sold their puzzle collection to another museum. Things ended up dispersed across the country some in private collections, some in public. And that didn't happen at the Corcoran, which I think is some victory, but. Mm -hmm. I think what was really shocking to a lot of people about the Corcoran is like, here's a major museum, relatively major museum, in a giant city, Mm -hmm. um, a wealthy city, relatively. I mean, the perception is culture is sort of East Coast. This is like the home of, of major museums. And for a museum like the Corcoran to close down, it's sort of like a whoa. Could this happen to the Met? Could this happen anywhere? And I think that has something to do with the fact that it was relatively popular compared to maybe the other museums that you looked at. Definitely more well-known. I mean, I think one of the things that the director that I talked to spoke about was that it was sort of in direct competition with the National Gallery. Mm -hmm. And the National Gallery was just more popular. Right. And she said that decades ago, there had been some, some push towards making it a more contemporary museum. And the current the director at the time pushed back against that and said no. And she was like, who knows if that change had been made decades and decades ago, it might be a thriving contemporary art museum now because that's not a space that's being filled. Interesting. That's in in DC. sort of the bed that the Met is making too, right? And in, in expanding their modern and contemporary program mm-hmm. in hopes that it will draw in new donors, um, mm-hmm. people that are much more tapped into the contemporary art world. Yeah, contemporary um, is where it's at. 
right now, I think. Right. Although the Mets making this decision now when they know contemporary is hot, I guess the Corcoran would have had to make it, make it 40 years ago. Yeah. When Then they would have been ahead of the game, though. I know. You know? I guess it's a gamble that you don't... Hindsight is twenty twenty. But obviously this is, you know, obviously this is more about more than just balance sheets and like the legalities of, of how things are closed. For a lot of people, I imagine these, not so much at the Corcoran, but for the other museums, these were sort of major, major cultural bastions in places that aren't like New York where you have like 20 museums plus. Right. How do these closures kind of affect the actual residents? Well, I think probably the... the most obvious example of that is in Fresno because Fresno doesn't have a huge population of museums. And actually I talked to the lawyer who helped guide the museum through sort of closing down process. And he said that he grew up in a small town outside of Fresno. And so every year he used to pay for a bus to drive the eighth grade class of this small town that he grew up in to Fresno to see the works of art in the Fresno Met. And it was oftentimes the first time they'd ever been to a museum and the first time they'd ever been to a city as big as Fresno, which gives you an idea of how small the town they came from was. And he was like, that can't happen anymore. We don't have the museum. That makes me sad. I feel sad now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so that's definitely a bittersweet. I mean, yeah, these stories can be kind of a bummer. Yeah, like interesting from kind of like a higher up perspective when you really look at what's happening it's quite sad right and i mean i think it's especially obvious in a place like fresno i mean in new york when the museum of biblical art closes down I you probably didn't uh, even know it existed what that is a that is slander it's true but you know <laughs> slanderous yeah and i mean in in the case of worcester we got lucky and the higgins armory moved to a museum in the same place but there are some museums small museums that are going to close in cities where there just aren't other cultural institutions to replace them Before we start talking about what we're going to be doing in the art world next week, I'm a little curious to, to talk about you know smaller museums. What are the what are sort of these like niche institutions that you've stumbled across in your life? So this last this fall, I was living in Los Angeles, and close by where I was working in Culver City, there's this tiny little museum called the Museum of Jurassic Technology, and. I walked in, I didn't know exactly what to expect. So I walk in, the first exhibit is this sort of diorama on a South American bat. And I'm reading this, I'm reading the wall text, and I'm realizing as I'm reading it that what they're telling me is this bat's echolocation is so strong that it can fly through solid objects. Wow. <laughs> and that was just sort of the primer for this whole museum. It's Tessa's been, so she can Yeah, nothing speak to really the, makes sense, even down to the pedestals, which are just like really peculiarly shaped and size. Do we know the backstory? Like, who's is there just some sort of? Oh yeah, I mean, there's a book about this museum. You should read a it. A book. Yeah, wow. a okay. whole book. I mean, the guys, the the owner of this museum apparently sits, like, in the tea room on the second floor and plays his zither. There's a tea room. <laughs> there's, there's a tea, a tea room, room that serves British tea, uh, on nice trays. PG tips. And or I think it's a more little high, high end. High I think it's higher end. Yeah. And then you also can. <laughs> Uh, you can just hang out on this aviary at the top where there what? are, I think, doves mm -hmm. flying around. I mm -hmm. mean, it's just, it's, it like goes from weird to weirder. Yeah, I mean, you have beautiful. To, to get to the aviary, you have to walk through a portrait gallery full of <laughs> paintings of Soviet dogs sent into space. That's, I'm glad that exists. There needs to be some record of those brave dogs. All right, <laughs> Tess. Uh, my weirdest museum experience. So I have two runners up one of which is Nessie Land 
which is, of course, the museum dedicated to Scotland's legendary Loch Ness Monster. Of course. And then also Graceland, I wanted to give a shout out to, which is, of course, Elvis Presley's incredibly, insanely lavish home and private jet that you can explore. But my number one is, in fact, not a museum. I'm going to just take some creative license here. We'll see. (laughs) It's not technically a museum, but it is in the sense that it houses arrangements of objects that have an aesthetic aspect to them. It's called the Neptune Society Columbarium, um, and it's essentially a mausoleum, but it's non-denominational. Um, and Wait, so where is it? It's Sorry, it's in San Francisco, San Francisco. California. Okay. Um, so if you imagine sort of a beehive of small niches that extend up into the air, filled with cards and candy and small dolls and just these sort of odd tableau dedicated to people that have passed away it's really fascinating well i think we'll allow that as a museum just because it's so fascinating it's open to the public for certain hours so all right for the viewing there's no definition of what a museum is anyway i was trying to think about this and i've like realized that i haven't been to like really any quirky museums i feel like i've made major mistakes in my life but one thing that i recently went to was the motown museum in detroit which is strange because it's in Barry Gordy's house, home of the Motown sound. And it's like walking into a clock, except instead of telling time, it just like, there's only guided tours. And they like the tour guides must say the same thing every single time over and over and over. Like I they think don't, that's how guided tours work. Just gonna throw that It's there, crazy. <laughs> it's cr- like when she was, like when our tour guide was making these jokes, I was like, have you, how many times have you made that joke before? It's anyway. Um, maybe this is less shocking to other people, <laughs> but the crazy thing about it is like they have this ins- this like really intense security system where they watch you all the time, and if you take out your phone, like the tour guide is told in some sort of invisible way, and she like yells at you, and she yelled at someone on our tour for taking out their phone, which I didn't even notice. So she didn't even see the person take out their phone. She was like, "I was just paged by security. Please put away your phone. I will not ask again." I guess it's sort of like a so meta. You're being surveilled you're being surveilled and I guess it's kind of meta because Barry Gordy was also a huge control freak Abigail where are you going to be drinking white wine in the art world this week well this next week I'm actually going back home to Austin Texas looking forward to it very much but so I won't be drinking white wine at a gallery but I am planning on going to the Harry Ransom Center which is an archive associated with the University of Texas at Austin they have a lot of crazy stuff. They actually have the the um, Bob Woodward's report, like papers from when he reported the Watergate scandal. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. Um, they've got a lot of stuff from authors, but they also just acquired Ed Ruscha's archive, um, and it just opened up to the public. You can look through it starting in January. So I'm gonna go root around in there, see what Is I can find. This a preview of a piece we may be seeing on Artsy at some mm-hmm. point. Very likely. Tess is like <laughs> we've discussed. It's happening. It's in the works. Tess, what about you? Um, I am going upstate, hopefully, since it's 88 degrees outside. I'm going to check out Jack Shaman's school, which I have never been to before. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. What's a, on there right now, do you know? It's a group show with Richard Moss and three other artists that I'm less familiar with. And I am going to go to the Met. Say no more. <laughs> all right. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks very much to Tess and Abby for being Thanks, here. Thanks, Isaac. Yeah, thank you. Thanks also to our producer, Joe Sykes. And please do remember to find our podcast on iTunes. Subscribe, rate. It helps other people find it. Our intro music is by Broke for Free. See you guys next time.